Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. When you think about American history, you really had three, two or three groups of people uh, that immigrated into the Massachusetts, what would be called the Massachusetts Bay Colony back in the 1600s. You had individuals that were merchant type adventurers and they came primarily to make for themselves uh, a way in which they could uh, increase gains in the new world. And so you had folks like that that came. You had a group of individuals like pilgrims. Many of the pilgrims were really separatist. Uh, what that means is over time, uh, they recognized the theology of the, or maybe I should say the pervasive theology of the day in their country, most of which was England, uh, was taking a sharp turn away from the truths of the Word of God. Some of them came, these pilgrims came, because they're looking for religious freedom in the sense that if you didn't go along with the national or state established religion in England, it was primarily the Anglican or uh, assembly, but if you didn't go along with that, uh, then you were persecuted. And so many of them came in that regard over here and now they have freedom of religion. Now the irony was when you fast forward about a hundred years, uh, you get a state religion in the Massachusetts Bay Area. <clears throat> and it really was something to do with the Puritans, the Congregationalists. And if you weren't one of them, that hindered you. In the 1740s, 1730s, you have a great awakening in the U.S. Um, see, in that Massachusetts Bay, though their original founders came across and they established a church and there was a level of truth proclaimed, etc., and lives of, uh, of holiness in some sense unto the Lord, at some point you had, you had a generation that arose that was filling up pews uh, that in some regards um, melded into the practice of their parents, but they were never converted unto truth. Well, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was set up in such a way that if you weren't a member of the church, couldn't own property, you couldn't have those things. And so a theology came out called the Halfway Covenant. Anybody familiar with the Halfway Covenant? Essentially, it went like this. Well, if, if you were baptized as an infant, if your parents were part of one of the churches, then that was good enough to make you a church member. And you could go on. Well, you've got a teeming masses of people now that are attending churches where that church is, is nothing more than a tradition to them. They are not born again. But they are practicing church-going people. Now, I would note, as the historian Santana said, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So it was during those uh, mid-1700s, you've got people like uh, Whitfield that began to preach. And Whitfield would come and have some of the most prosperous time in the Massachusetts Bay Colony area. But the people coming to Christ <clears throat> in droves were not necessarily what you and I would look at as maybe a hardened sinner, your drunks, your prostitutes, your people of ill repute. That's not what it was. The masses coming into conversion under the preaching of Whitfield, you know who they were? They were churchmen. They were people, some of them honestly were uh, leaders in those very churches and their heart was shaken well, when their heart was shaken, they come to a conversion. They went back to those churches. And now, instead of just accepting tradition of men, they begin to look into the words of God. 
And of course, many of them would uh, look and find that some of the pure, puritanical beliefs and some of the puritanical structures of polity of churches were unacceptable. And so in uh, uh, Connecticut, you have, uh, I think it's Stratford, Connecticut, is one that comes to mind, it may not be that but uh, you have a group of believers that assembled together and they wanted to refer to themselves as a separate Congregationalist church. They felt Congregationalist by polity. They on paper believed a lot of things, but in practice they were putting a tremendous emphasis on the conversion of the individual unto salvation. And the Congregational church said, absolutely not. You, if you're going to be a Congregationalist church, you're going to be a Congregationalist church. There's no separate business. So then they decided just to be a separate congregation. And eventually that same congregation realized they could have no peace in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They thought about moving to Rhode Island where there was religious freedom under the establishment of the charter given to Roger Williams. Uh, but instead they moved down through Pennsylvania to Winchester, Virginia. And then from there, 1750s, you have, uh, you have the Great War, uh, French and Indian War. And from there after that settled they moved down to Sandy Creek, North Carolina. And they're often referred to as the separate Baptist. That's what eventually the moniker they took. Now I'm not telling you all this just to put you in mind of Baptist, but what I am saying is every generation that has ever been, even if you were to start with the pilgrims, why did the pilgrims come here, a great host of them? Separating from theological error. When you go to the 1500s, the 1517s, you get Martin Luther. And I'm more or less of the opinion that when Martin Luther nailed the 90, 95 Thesis on the door at Wittenberg Chapel, that uh, Wittenberg Castle, I don't necessarily believe he was a, uh, a saved man at that time. He was formerly a monk, and he felt what I would describe as conviction according to his writings, and he would leave there and he would go to Rome. And he felt if there's one place on the world that he ought to be able to find peace, it's where the Pope is. Now consider, he was trained in this false teaching. Uh, and so he made his way by foot, by journey, all the way from the Arab Germany, all the way into Rome by foot. This is thousands of miles. He's going to travel uh, by road to get there. And when he enters in, looking, what's he looking for? Peace, answers, truth. He's approached by the selling of indulgences. Now, for those that aren't familiar, that is kind of a prepayment for transgressions. And he was astounded that Rome, that was supposed to be, that he had been trained since a little child and been trained in monastery was a place of utter holiness and righteousness unto God and he found it to be a cesspool of utter wickedness. It was a marked time of disappointment. He returns and he then nails the 95 Thesis which really was more of a uh, issues that he had noticed from his trip to Rome and it's after that he comes to conversion. What does he do? You have him, usually him and other guys just charted as a, the Great Reformation. They see a need to separate from Rome. Uh, you can move down and we could chase this thing for hundreds and hundreds of years. Separation is a key tenet in the life of any believer. And so though we're not necessarily just talking about ecclesiastical separation, I want to look this morning at some biblical principles of separation. If you have your Bibles, look in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If, if you want to study a little bit on the doctrines of biblical separations, Corinthians, first and second, are a good place to start. Why? Because that's one of the main charges Paul has against them. Uh, and you open in the first Corinthians chapter one, 
you have just sects among the church, all kind of groups of people. You have blatant immorality that's alleged in chapter 5 and chapter 6. You continue down there, you've got Christians that are taking each other to court of law. You've got the whole issue with eating of meat of preference one with another. I mean, you have nothing but a whole mess. And of course, when they finally do get some of that right, you come to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, and you find out that then they still didn't have it right. And so if you're wanting to know a good place to start, Corinthians, 1st and 2nd in particular, are good places to consider. And I want to draw your attention on 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and notice, if you will, verse number 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 17, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Verse 18, Will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. I'm not going to take the time, though it would be well worth the investment of time. But as you look down through 14, there are clarities that are given. What, what has a believer to do yoking with an unbeliever? What has a fellowship of righteousness and unrighteousness? What hath communion, hath light and darkness, or Christ and Belial, or the temple of God with idols? You know what he's drawing a distinction of? Acceptable and unacceptable. And looking to the Corinthian church, he says, come out from among them and be ye separate. Look to your notes. I have that verse listed, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me give you a little detail on those words. The first blank there, wherefore come out, O-U-T, come out. That word out, if you're writing, you can circle it after you've written it down there and pull it out. It means to depart. It means to escape. To depart. To escape. It's very interesting that some remain in a compromising situation ecclesiastically or personally for the cause of being a witness or for ecclesiastical matters of being a reformer. I couldn't tell you the number of Christians, particularly during COVID that you meet, uh, that uh, for maybe the first time have come out for various reasons away from a ministry that they've been involved in, and it's then they begin noticing so much corruption and illegitimate theology that is present in churches. And we look in our heart, well, that's where Grandma went. That's where I've invested time. Notice what God's command is. Come out. Uh, I was reading an article. This was written in the 60s. And the guy's a very pointed man. And he, he said, it's his opinion, this is the 1960s, that 95% of the time, when someone realizes that there's such error that major change needs to happen, 95% of the time, there's no use for reformation. There's only one answer. What do you think that answer is? Come out and be ye separate. Number two, he goes on, not only wherefore come out from among them, but be ye separate. That word separate has with it the idea to exclude, to set 
boundaries by. To set boundaries by. And even in some essences in the scriptures, it has the context of severing a relationship. Then he says, touch not the unclean thing. The idea of touching, no attachment to. No attachment to. This is really where oftentimes this matter of separation becomes a difficult thing. You look at these three words, out, separate, and touch. They rip at the very heart of our desires. This matter of separation can cause a believer to be separated from something that they enjoy. If be that enjoyment be a sin or cause a sin in their life. It can cause a believer to have to come away from people that they count dear friends because of choices that have been made. Sometimes it can even reverberate even down to the family level. That's what these words mean. Notice our paragraph there, the law of nature dictates to us that water always flows, always flows downhill. I was out towards Pittsburgh, I, I think probably the first time I'd ever been there, and I, I went to where the, the, the waters converge, the three rivers. And then that led me on a little geographical history. I said to myself, where do these waters come from? And I was particularly struck by, I think it's the Allegheny. And the Allegheny kind of looks like it runs, I believe it's Allegheny, it might have been the Mongahela, but one of them start in West Virginia, and on a map it looks like it runs uphill to Pittsburgh. You know what? Water naturally never runs uphill. What it is, if it starts in West Virginia there, it's at a higher elevation. To our viewpoint, it may look on a map like it's running uphill, but from the series of the geography that is present, water never defies the nature of gravity and the laws of gravity. It runs downhill. Another oft-repeated phrase is that of an individual or person or thing following the path of least resistance in life. Is it the salmon out in the Pacific Northwest that make that great trek upriver? Am I right on that? Is it, is it the salmon? That's what captivates us. It mesmerizes us that these fish will power themselves through sometimes spills of water going across rocks, but certainly against the current that exists just to get back to the spawning ground. That's what amazes us about it because naturally it is far easier to go along with a course of stream than to hold to a line that is theologically distinct. Conservative principles, be they theologically or practical as you and I might apply them in our life, must always be contended for. <clears throat> if you want to underline that quote, it will be a good thing to do because it's almost a law that exists observably in nature. Anything conservative, particularly as it relates towards biblical truths, has to be contended for. There's no other way to do it. It won't happen by accident. 
That's why periods of time, you know, preacher preaches on holiness or he preaches on the preservation of scriptures or the authority of scriptures or various things. Why do you do that? Because you're contending for a principle. And if it goes a great length, it will go out of our mind. And if it goes out of our mind, it will certainly then go out of our practice of life. Conservative principles must always be contended for if they are to be maintained or gained. You remember Jude? He said, I went about to write unto you concerning the common salvation, but it became more needful that I write unto you that ye should earnestly contend. The Greek word is agomitsenai, and it has the idea to agonize over. Earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. There is a natural ebb towards progressivism in the world. It's true in politics. It's certainly true in our culture. And it's certainly true as it relates to the church. This human tendency has been well described in the area of parenting by the following. What the parents do in moderation, do you remember the last part of that phrase? The children will do in excess. So then we come to this question, why is separation needful? I mean, Ephesians chapter number four, he talks about having one faith, one unity. Why is separation a needful thing? And why would we even talk about separation? I suppose most Christians, or at least a fair number of them, would say, yes, I realize I need to be separate from the Muslim world, or I realize I need to be separate from the cult world, but why would I need to be separated from other people that identify as Christians? It seems weird to use that word identify as that. But why would I do so? Why is separation necessary? The reality remains that each generation of believers must and most certainly will make decisions. You cannot sustain a ministry, relationship, or family by the victories of yesterday. Back in 2009 or 2010, I was preaching at a, uh, actually it's at a church in south, south of Pittsburgh, <clears throat> a little community down there, and uh, a pastor had started a work there, and um, they were in an old uh, denominational building. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if they rented it or if it was gifted to them or not. But anyway, uh, I was up to speak. There was a missions conference here, and I was up to speak. And uh, I got behind the pulpit, and it was a really, you could tell it was an older pulpit. And I was speaking. And uh, afterwards, a preacher came up to me. He said, you know what you just did? And I said, I spoke. You know, I didn't know how to tell I say something wrong. He said, Fred, you just preached on the very platform behind the very pulpit that Billy Sunday did 90 years ago. That's what he said to me. And I said, and that church had about 40 people. I said, do you suppose there was only 40 people that heard him? He goes, no, man. He said, we've got that reg register. He said, this place was packed out. They were standing in the community to hear Billy Sunday preach. Now, it's not wrong to consider that, but Billy Sunday preaching on that pulpit 100 years ago is not what is needed today. You need the same message going forward today.
you can't live off of past pulpits. Uh, that's true as you look at every aspect of your life. And I said live off past pulpits, but I'm in live off past victories. <clears throat> life is full of decisions. Therefore, at each interchange, the Christian is faced with a choice. He must choose. What has he got to choose? See, the real choice is you have to make, and I have to make, some of the same decisions that those saints of God, I don't know, 80, 90 years ago. They had to make a choice too. And saints before them had to make a choice. And before them, every generation, a choice must be made. What's the choice? Well, you must choose God's way, God's means, and God's truth. And I'm going to promise you something. God's way, means, and truth will always by the world and by pragmatists seem to be foolish. For it hath pleased God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, by the foolishness of preaching. Preaching is still to this day deemed a very foolish thing to do. We've gone about to evangelize people with blasphemous commercials called He Gets Us. Anybody, anybody see that? You know what that is? An abomination before God. I find it interesting that the, the, uh, one of the groups that opposed that Super Bowl type commercial, um, by the way, I back that up, that comes right out of one of the finances is a church in Southern California. It isn't a bunch of people that have never been a church in a day of their life that just decided we're going to fund tons of money. No, it came right out of a church or group of churches in Southern California that would call themselves evangelical. Why is separation? It's not God's way. God is not very interested in your righteousness at all. It's not God's means. And it certainly is not God's truth. All the while, this world system is seeking to promote and proclaim the superiority of self and sin. And that's what the world system has always sought to proclaim. How good and how righteous and how superior self is to God and sin is to truth. Hath not God said, Satan said in the Garden of Eden, Surely it won't be this way. When you become as God, self and sin. In regards to a Christian that would live honestly before God, there is no middle ground concerning the need of separation. W.B. Riley was a pastor at Minnesota who contended with modernism and liberalism practically all of his ministry. I mean, I'm talking over 100 years ago, um, Baptist, leave the rest of them alone, that did not believe in the authority of scriptures. Yet they were pastoring Baptist churches. That's what it was. They were an association. Missionaries, missionaries coming out of one church that didn't hold the same tenets of truth that should have been held by anybody that proclaimed themselves as a God-fearing Christian. And he contended with them and he spoke on or commented on in the scriptures of Israel and her need to separate from the Jebusites and the Hivites and the Amalekites and all the other associated ites. And yet he commented that the most dangerous of all 
are the in-betweenites. By the way, they plagued Israel the most. Is it, was it Eleazar that killed a priest in Moab? God was judging them. Thousands were dying, and you've still got people on the fence as to what they ought to do or ought not to do. The most dangerous error that truth has ever produced is these people that think that they can be a friend of those that embrace error and it not taint them or others, the in-betweenites. These folks are those that seek to straddle every issue and to keep friends, and I mean that by way of influence, on both sides of every issue. Well, where do we get the idea of separation at from the Bible? Where do you examine it in Scripture? I've given you five things here. <clears throat> Let me start with number one. As you look in the Scriptures, you'll find that God separated Himself from Satan. God separated Himself from Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 13 and 14, you'll find the account of Satan and his ultimate demise as he is cast from the presence of the Almighty God. And it was over the matter of really questioning the authority of God in many regards. You'll read there in verse number 13, he says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit upon the throne of the congregation, or, or upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the most high as the cloud. I will be like the most high. Well, who is higher than God? Who's embracing, if you will, yet also an example of divine behavior or behavior of the divine that God would have to all of His believers. God separated Himself from Satan and this establishes a divine example for all believers to follow. God separated Himself from His creation. Who created Lucifer? Isn't that amazing? You'll find sometimes that parents are sometimes faced with a hard choice. They want a relationship with children, but the children have embraced uh, errors of truths. False teaching, they've embraced this, and well, the children want to go over here and do this, and the mom and dad want to be with the children, and they want to love the children, have a relationship with the children, but they're forced to make a decision. Do you roll up and throw away all the truth that has directed your feet for all these years for the sake of your children you love, or do you stand fast? God stood fast. God separated Himself from evil, even if it was that that was promulgated by His own creation. That's an example for us. Number two, where is separation examined in scriptures? Well, you can see that when God separated Adam and Eve in the garden. We're familiar with the account. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22 and 24. Adam and Eve accepted doctrinal error and were in blatant disregard and disobedience against God. Accordingly, God removed them from the place of perfect communion, although He did promise a means of redemption. 
I would note there with Adam and Eve, God did not descend and say, Adam, wherefore art thou? And when seeing, though he was all-knowing, when seeing their error, say, well, now let's sit down and talk about this and see if we can come to an arrangement or an agreement now that we believe different things. God separated himself from Adam and Eve. Where else is it seen in scriptures? And there's a number of practical places. You could look at 2 Corinthians, light and darkness and uh, temples, uh, the uh, temple of idols, the temple of God, etc. But a third one. As you read through the Old Testament, a chief narrative is the fact that God insisted that Israel be separate from other nations. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. God had chosen a specific family on earth. Now let me, let me just impart something. We said this a couple of weeks ago and I, I just want to reiterate it. God was not condemning all those other nations to a godless eternity. Israel was to be a shining light. Israel had the oracles of God. Israel had the Ark of the Covenant. Israel had the Ten Commandments. Israel saw God's power and perseverance towards His people. People could come and convert to truth. And some did. You know, you read in the Old Testament, you'll find about, uh, uh, what is it, Jethro? Doesn't seem to be a Jew. I think that's Moses' father-in-law. He comes into the nation. You look in Ruth, the whole narrative of Ruth. Here's a gal that was a what? Moabitess. They were forbidden to stand in the congregation. But yet, Ruth the Moabitess is in the very genealogy of our dear Lord. How'd that happen? She was a Moabitess. She ain't of that now. What was that lady that lived in Jericho? Rahab. She was a Jerichoite. But she assembled with the congregation. She left what was and embraced what is. And that's true of this. Any nation could have submitted to the God of heaven and had blessing. Yet if they're not, Israel was to separate from them. They, the Israelite nation, was to be holy unto him. And in order for Israel to maintain her right walk, separation from other nations was absolutely necessary. Number four. There's another area. Well, we've read this here in 2 Corinthians. But circling back, God insists that his church be exclusive, not inclusive. By the way, that's God's salvation too, isn't it? Remember John chapter 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father. That's a very exclusive gospel to be preached. Look elsewhere in the scriptures. There is one mediator between God and man, the man. There ain't 19 ways to heaven. In fact, there's just one. So we have an exclusive gospel and when it speaks of the Lord's assembly, His church, He demands that His assembly be exclusive. The whole theology that would be behind the idea of a seeker-sensitive movement is contrary to the doctrines of the church in the New Testament. 
God insists that His church be exclusive, not inclusive. God insists that a church that is true to Him be separated from evil and error. Strong lines of demarcation. Number five, a fifth thing. God demands that the individual believer be separated from this world. 1 John chapter 2. You remember what it says? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father, so if I'm going to love God, I'm going to have to be separate from the world. Each believer must apply biblical separation to the choices they make in life. This world, verse number 17, is passing away. It should not be the object of the saint's affection. I think of Colossians chapter 3. Set your affection on things above and not on things of this world. His affections, the believer's affections, must be set on those things which are above. I believe it's Philippians, maybe around about chapter number 2 or 3. He talks about, for our conversation is in heaven. Biblically speaking... Separation is not optional. It is, in fact, a matter of obedience. Well, we've looked about why it's necessary. We've looked about where we find it in general themes in scriptures. So let's look about where practically it needs to be seen in the life of believers. Where is separation necessary? Looking at the above list of five places, there seems to be to us two broad areas in which current believers must strive for separation unto Christ. The first of these is personal separation. This deals with personal decisions of each believer. What you and I are going to do. How I'm going to live in righteousness how I'm going to allow the process of sanctification to occur in my life, what music I'm going to listen to, how I'm going to dress myself or attire myself, what type of vocation I'm going to enter to. All of this deals with a personal level of sanctification, or I should say separation. The second one is a little bit more broad. It's ecclesiastical separation. This, in many regards, is the choice of the body of believers. What they have, the old timers used to talk about, covenanted together for. I'll leave you with these thoughts. If the real Christ is in us and His real Spirit is expressing Himself through us, we have illumination of Scripture. If we're in a biblically correct relationship with Christ, if we would say we seek to be obedient to the Word of God, If those previous things are correct, then our theology, behavior, theology, behavior, obedience, I'm sorry, apparel, appearance rather, theology, behavior, appearance, values, and choices should be defined by Scripture. Purity. Purity is essential to the obedient believer for his walk and his worship. While you're finishing those, there's a litany of verses 
1 John chapter 3 and verse 3. He speaks of it on this wise and says, He that hath this hope in him that he'll see God, he that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Ephesians 5 and verse 27, Paul writing, and we often denote about the uh, husband and wife relationship in Ephesians chapter 5, but he says at the end, I speak of the church, and he speaks of God who would present himself a bride, having not spot and wrinkle, and he speaks of that purity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, once again, the desire and the need for purity in the life of every believer. Biblical principle of separation. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.